All right, let's talk about Alexander Pope's The Rape of the Lock. Uh, The 18th century was a great age of satire, and both the 18th century writers we're going to look at were great satirists. And Pope was, in addition, one of the, maybe the great poet of the, what's sometimes called the Age of Reason. And he used what are called heroic couplets, that is, iambic pentameter rhymed couplets. Uh, It's a very difficult meter to to work in for a long time because he can get sing-songy or too regular, and he was a master at always having enough variation in it to keep it lively. Uh, Many of his imitators weren't so lucky. Uh, Another thing about the uh, heroic couplets is that they're very good for setting up contrasts, and they're also very good at setting up things that sound like little pearls of wisdom. And uh, Pope actually has, uh, somewhere I read that in Bartlett's Familiar Quotations, uh, Shakespeare, of course, has the most quotations, but number two is Pope, because he, uh, at a way, he would say things like, True wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. And you can hear how the little uh, rhymed couplet gives that, uh, uh, sounds sounds like a little nugget of wisdom. Or, or, you know, he would say, uh, Be not the first by whom the new is tried, nor yet the last to set the old aside. So again, he the form kind of reinforced the things that he was saying, and we'll see how he does that in Rape of the Lock. Now, this was uh, in response to, written in response to an actual event, uh, a man who cut a lock of hair off this woman who he had been uh, courting and was hoping to marry, and she was greatly offended, and it became a great social scandal. And, you know, Pope's mock heroic here is kind of saying get over yourself uh, so he uses the a lot of epic forms that are placed on things that are not epic typical epic subject matter uh, he begins what dire offense from amorous causes springs what mighty contests rise from trivial things now, even there, you, there's a you know, he starts off dire offenses from amorous causes. Well, that could be you know for the Iliad, for you know the uh, Helen of Troy and all that. But then, what mighty contests rise from trivial things? Already, we're diminishing it. We're getting down to trivial. Now, the main character of the Rape of the Lock is Belinda, and she's a stand-in for uh, Arabella Farmer. Uh, who was the actual lady that this uh, happened to, but he's fictionalized her here. But it begins talking about her, line 20, her guardian sylph. That's a little spirit that is uh, uh, over her. He prolonged the balmy rest. "'Twas he had summoned her to silent bed, the morning dreams that hovered o'er her head. A youth more glittering than a, a birthnight bow that even in slumber caused her cheek to glow." seemed to her ear his winning lips to lay, and thus in whispers said, or seemed to say. Now this, I hope, will remind you of Paradise Lost. Remember, you had Satan squat like a toad, whispering into Eve's ear and creating her dream. Now here we have the good guy, the guardian sylph, who is creating this dream. Um, And he tells us the whole kind of of, uh, nature of these 
uh, unnumbered spirits, as he says, line 41, unnumbered spirits round thee fly, the light militia of the lower sky. And where they come from, he says, as now your own, our beings were of old, at once enclosed in woman's beauteous mold. Thence by soft transition we repair from earthly vehicles to these of air. So we used to be women, but now our spirits have passed on and we're like guardian angels here. And there are four kinds, and they're like the, the four elements. Um, he starts from line uh, 59. The spirits of fiery termagants in flame mount up and take a salamander's name. So the fiery, you know, hot-headed women are the salamanders. Soft, yielding minds to water glide away and sip with nymphs their element, their elemental tay, or tea. So nymphs are kind of yielding, soft. Uh, then, then we get the graver prude sinks downward to a gnome in search of mischief still on earth to roam. So the, the mischievous prudes, and we'll see some of them later, are the gnomes, and the light coquettes in sylphs aloft repair and sport and flutter in the fields of air. So these are the women like Belinda who are uh, coquettes. They're kind of flirts. Uh, they have, don't have a, a man, but they're always flirting with them. It says, no further yet, Whoever fair and chaste rejects mankind is by some sylph embraced. So if you don't, you know, uh, uh, give your heart to a man, you'll be embraced by one of the, or, or many of these sylphs. And Belinda's chief guardian is Ariel. He says on line 105, Of these am I, who thy protection claim, a watchful sprite, and Ariel is my name. Late, as I ranged the crystal wilds of air, in the clear mirror of thy ruling star, I saw, alas, some dread Im event impend, ere to the main this morning sun descend. But heaven reveals not what, or how, or where. Warned by the sylph, so pious maid, beware. This to disclose is all thy guardian can. Beware of all, but most beware of man." So he knows that something is up, but he doesn't know, you know, what uh, what dire event is going to happen. And, and then we get this vision, uh, line one twenty one. And now unveiled the toilet stands displayed. Now this is not a commode. Uh, a toilet was a lady's dressing table, um, and each silver vase in mystic order laid. First robed in white, the nymph intent adores with head uncovered the cosmetic powers. A heavenly image in the glass appears that to that she bends, to all her eyes she rears. The inferior priestesses at her altar's side, trembling, begin the sacred rites of pride. Now notice the elevated way he's describing this. She's sitting down and putting her makeup on in the morning. But it becomes this sacred, holy event, the, the, um, uh, the mystic order of the, the toilet. Um, and it goes on, it talks about uh, where all of these things come from. The various, line 130, the various offerings of the world appear. From each she nicely culls with curious toil and decks the goddess with the glittering spoil. This casket India's glowing gem unlocks and all Arabia breathes from yonder box. The tortoise here and elephant unite, transformed to combs, the speckled and the white. So she has combs, some are tortoise shell, some are ivory, uh, tortoise and the elephant, uh, speckled and white. 
Here files of pens extend their shining rows, puffs, powders, patches, Bibles, billets d'eau. Uh, now, look at that. Uh, Pope does this a lot. He has these little lists, uh, sometimes longer ones, uh, but they're a key part of his satiric intent here. Look at that list. You've got puffs, powders, patches. First of all, you've got those those very strong p p uh, p alliterations, uh, powder puffs, the powder that you use them, the patches that you use for cosmetics, and then Bibles and bilido. Bilido is love letters. Now, this is a kind of like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the others. Uh, Bibles. The Bible is there, right in there with the powder puffs and the love letters. Now, what does that do? Uh, that kind of levels it out. That's uh, taking something that the Bible should be something taken seriously. Here, it's just another accoutrement of her toilet. Um, it's, But it also, it works the other way. It can say that for Belinda, her powder puffs are just as important to her as the Bible. Uh, and again, that really shows the, the, the world that he's satirizing. And you get the sense that uh, Pope, though he is poking fun at this world, he really does kind of admire this uh, this beautiful world that is so obsessed with, uh, with surfaces. Um, now, in Canto II... We get uh, she has come out from you know already uh, mentions that they don't get up until noon uh, it must be rough um, and she comes out uh, Belinda uh, round line fifteen of Canto two bright as the sun her eyes the gazers strike and like the sun they shine on all alike so she is I mean she is the center of this world her she her look shines on everyone and it talks about her. Her two locks of hair that she has, you know, down the back of her neck that she so carefully has uh, pre- prepared, and then we meet the 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 n- next character, the villain of the piece, the Baron, line twenty nine, the adventurous Baron, the bright locks admired, he saw, he wished, and to the prize aspired, resolved to win, he meditates the way by force to ravish or by fraud betray. So whether he's going to take them or take them by tricks, he doesn't care. He's going to do that anyway. And we get another of these kind of mock epic moments, you know, to love an altar built um, of 12 vast French romances neatly gilt. There lay three garters, half a pair of gloves, that would be one glove, and all the trophies of his former loves. With tender Belledo, he lights the pyre and breathes three amorous sighs to raise the fire. Then prostrate falls and begs with ardent eyes soon to obtain and long possess the prize. The powers give ear and grant half and granted half his prayer. The rest, the winds dispersed in empty air. Uh, so this is, you know, he's actually, you know, it's like a, almost like a human sacrifice. He's burning all of his old love letters and uh, praying to the gods to let him have the uh, the uh, the lock. Again, they're they're really taking all of this very very seriously. And Ariel, uh, he doesn't really know what the that the Baron is the one they'd have to worry about. But he line ninety, uh, line, I'm sorry, line one hundred and one uh, is gathering all of the other sylphs to uh, to help out. 
This day black omens threat the brightest fair that e'er deserved a watchful spirit's care, some dire disaster, or by force or slight, but what or where the fates have wrapped in night, whether the nymph shall break Diana's law, or some frail china jar receive a flaw, or stain her honor, or her new brocade, forget her prayers, or miss a masquerade, or lose her heart or necklace at a ball or whether heaven has doomed that shock must fall. So here again is another one of these lists, and it flattens out these things that are in different categories. Uh, Whether the the nymph, that's just a a beautiful young lady, shall break Diana's law. Diana is the goddess of chastity. So is she going to lose her chastity? Or some frail china jar receive a flaw? And those are put right next to each other. So either she's going to lose her virginity or she's going to get a crack in one of her china cups or stain her honor or her new brocade. So there will be a stain to her honor or she'll get a stain on her dress. Uh, she will lose her heart or necklace at a ball. And again, those, seem, those things seem to be of the same importance. There's no distinction between losing your heart and losing your necklace at a ball. Or, or worst of all, maybe shock, that is her, her little poodle lapdog, is going to die. So he assigns all of the sylphs their, their charges. Haste then, ye spirits, to your charge repair. The fluttering fan by Zephyretta's care, be Zephyretta's care. The drops to thee, Brillantine, we consign. And mom, a momentilla, let the watch be thine. Now, Zephyrus means like air, she's going for the fan. Uh, Brillante is looking at her beautiful pearl earrings. Uh, Momentilla, moment, is looking at her watch. Do thou, Crispissa, tend the, her favorite lock. Ariel himself shall be the guard of shock. So the, uh, the Crisippa or Curly, is guarding the lock. And Ariel, of course, is going to take care of the most important thing, make sure that nothing happens to her little lapdog. Um, so again, there's there's a teasing tone to this, but there's also, I think, a genuine admiration of this kind of beautiful world where you know you don't you really do care about whether your china has a crack in it, and that's almost as important as whether you lose your virginity. Now, in Canto Three, we have uh, uh, Belinda is at Hampton Court, and this is the uh, oh well, let's pick it up around line. Uh, for which from the neighboring Hampton takes its name, here Britain's statesmen oft the fall for doom of foreign tyrants and of nymphs at home. Here thou, great Anna, whom the three realms obey, dost sometimes counsel take and sometimes tea. So there again is one of those linked. Uh, the technical term for this is zugma. Uh, that is, you have a single verb that controls two or more nouns. So sometimes she takes counsel and sometimes she takes tea. Well, those are two very different things, but again, they're flattened out here as if they were of the same monumental importance. Um, and she is here and, and she's playing uh, Ombra, which is a card game that with very complex rules is basically three people are playing uh, the you bid tricks and whoever has the highest gets to declare the uh, the Trump uh, suit and the other two are trying to prevent the one who has declared Trump's from winning their points 
if you know the rules of Ombra, which to be honest, I really don't, uh, apparently the uh, the account here is exactly accurate about a, a, a game of a card game, uh, but the the satirical points work whether you understand the game or not. Thank goodness. Uh, notice he talks about it as combat on the velvet plane, line forty four. Uh, again, it's elevating these trivial things to grand epic importance. The skillful nymph reviews her force with care. Let trumps be spades, she said, and trumps they were. Uh, this is almost like God said, let there be light. Uh, again, it kind of elevates the, the tone of what they're doing. Um, or look around line 65. Thus far, both armies to Belinda yield. Now to the barren, uh, fate inclines the field. So she's been winning the the battle, and it, again, in the mock epic style, it presents this as an actual battle uh, on the, this green field with these kings and queens, uh, and now the, the baron is going to win a trick. Look at line uh, 79. Clubs, diamonds, hearts, in wild disorder seen, with throngs promiscuous, strew the level green. So it's like heaps of dead bodies on the field. It says, Thus, when dispersed, a routed army runs, of Asia's troops and Afric's sable sons. With like confusion, different nations fly, of various habits and of various dye. The pierced battalions disunited fall in heaps on heaps, one fate or rules them all. So notice those lines are a little epic simile. The, these cards were like the, the troops of, of, of Asia and Africa, uh, who, who, you know, different, uh, different nationalities, but they all fall to the same fate, the way cards of different suits all fall into the same fate here. And look when uh, Belinda wins, line 99, the nymph exulting fills the shout and with shouts the sky, the walls, the woods, and long canals reply. O oh, thoughtless mortals, ever blind to fate, too soon dejected and too soon elate. Sudden these honors shall be snatched away and cursed forever this victorious day. Uh, now, that those last little four lines, you could take those out and put them in, in a real epic. Uh, but here it's saying, oh, yes, you've won the card game, but worse things are coming. You're going to lose a lock of hair. Uh, again, the, the, the style uh, both elevates and pokes fun at all of the events of the day. Uh, and so um, then they have a, a coffee break. Uh, they're drinking coffee in line 119. The coffee sent up in vapors to the baron's brain, new stratagems, the radiant lock to gain. Ah, cease, rash youth, desist, ere tis too late. Fear the just gods and think of Scylla's fate. Uh, so again, the narrator comes in and gives the epic warning of this. But uh, the baron has a, an accomplice, Clarissa, comes in, line uh, 127, and drew with tempting grace a two-edged weapon from her shining case. So ladies in romance assist their knights, present the spear and arm him for the fight. So again, it's comparing, she slips him a little pair of sewing scissors, and, well, that's just like when the lady in, in the old uh, chivalric tales of King Arthur uh, give a, a sword to, their, to the, the knight so that he can fight for her. Um, 
And line 140, we get uh, just in that instant, anxious Ariel sought the close recesses of the virgin's thought. As on the nosegay in her breast reclined, he watched the ideas rising in her mind. Sudden he viewed, in spite of all her art, an earthly lover lurking at her heart. Amazed, confused, he found his power expired, resigned to fate, and with a sigh, retired. Now this is a very key moment because uh, Ariel is looking at her thoughts and what does he find there? What, what weakens his power? She has an earthly lover lurking in her heart. She is not going to be a pure and virginal forever. She is thinking of love and maybe even of sex. Uh, and that just makes Ariel wilt. He has no power now to help her. And then the, the Baron comes in. The peer now spreads the glittering forfex wide to enclose the lock, now joins it to divide. Again, that's really highfalutin language for he snipped a lock of her hair off. The glittering forfex uh, joins it to divide. Uh, even then, before the fatal engine closed, a wretched sylph too fondly interposed, fate urged the shears and cut the sylph in twain. But airy substance soon, soon unites again. The meeting points the sacred hairs dissever from the fair head forever and forever. Um, so the, the, the sylph uh, tries to protect her, gets in the way of the scissors, but it's just cut in two by the scissors as well. But because it's just an airy spirit, it doesn't really hurt it. It just kind of reassembles and doesn't and isn't hurt at all. Um, then flashed the living lightning from her eyes, from Belinda, and screams of horror rend the affrighted skies. Not louder shrieks to pitying heaven are cast when husbands or when lapdogs breathe their last. There again is another one of those those very uh, ironic, satiric lists, husbands or lapdogs. So the, the, this is the kind of scream and shout and, and grief you would hear when a husband died or when your lapdog died. And again, they seem to be exactly the same thing. Um, it says, We're, or when rich china vessels fallen from high in glittering dust and painted fragments lie. Uh, that's interesting. Rich china vessels. That's you know, so. Th- it's the same kind of reaction you'd have if a, a, a you know beautiful piece of china fell and shattered on the ground. But even that phrase, rich china vessels, it almost gives the impression of you know some great uh, uh, sea voyage coming from the far ends of the earth. But no, it's just you know the china bowl that got that fell and got shattered. Um, at the same time, it, 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 it's poking fun of that, but it's also putting us in that mindset where we can imagine how it would feel to that you know a china vessel falling on the ground would be as big a uh, an event as your husband dying. And of course, the the Baron just is is laughing. You know, the glorious prize is mine. He says. Um, and notice how the the Baron puts all of this again into epic terms. Line one seventy one. What time would spare from steel receives its date, and monuments like men submit to fate. Steel could the labor of the gods destroy and strike to dust the imperial powers of Troy. Steel could the works of mortal pride confound and hew triumphal arches to the ground. 
What wonder then, fair nymph, thy hair should feel the conquering force of unresisted steel. So these these steel scissors, these steel, which sounds like, you know, with swords and spears and weapons, you know, d- destroyed the towers of Troy, uh, could, you know, destroy all these epic battles. And yes, and steel cut a little lock of your hair off too. Uh, again, everything is of the same, you know, unbelievable importance. Then in Canto 4, we get uh, Belinda's reaction. But anxious cares the pensive nymph oppressed, and secret passions labored in her breast. Uh, now that's interesting, the secret passions, because Ariel has seen some passions in there too. She may feel kind of torn at this, that she likes the Baron, but now she's offended by him. And then here we get another one of these wonderful lists. Not youthful kings in battle seized alive, not scornful virgins whom who their charms survive, not ardent lovers robbed of all their bliss, not ancient ladies when refused a kiss, not tyrants fierce that unrepenting die, not Cynthia when her mantos pinned awry, e'er felt such rage, resentment, and despair as thou, sad virgin, for thy ravished hair. So again, here's the list of, you know, nobody felt ever so much rage, so much resentment, so much despair as this list. It starts off, youthful kings in battle seized alive. So a young king who was not killed in battle, but was taken prisoner and is, you know, his honor has been sullied. Scornful virgins who their charms survive. So this is a a virgin who has uh, lived past her point of attractiveness and is really upset about it. Ardent lovers robbed of all their bliss. Now that sounds like, you know, Romeo and Juliet, some great tragedy. And ancient ladies when refused a kiss. So again, a woman's too old to be kissed by the men is is upset about it. Tyrants fierce, the, un, the unrepenting die. All right, that, that again, we're back to the epic. Or Cynthia, when her man, mantos pinned awry, when her, her, you know, when you've pinned the rap wrong, um, so again, it goes back and forth between great epic things and small, petty, domestic things. And now we get another of the um, uh, uh, spirits. This is Umbriel, uh, a dusky, melancholy sprite, as ever sullied the fair face of light. Down to the central earth, his proper scene, repaired to search the gloomy cave of spleen. Now, spleen, the spleen is an organ in the body, of course, but uh, in, in uh, Pope's time, they still were influenced by the idea of the four humors, and uh, spleen was one of where uh, ill humor would be generated. At one point, Hamlet says that he is not splintative and rash, uh, but uh, he sometimes acts that way. Uh, and he goes down line, and this is a mock epic send-up of the journey to the underworld, which happens in, of course, in in the Iliad and the Odyssey and in the Aeneid and in Dante's Inferno. But here they're not going to, to hell, they're going to the cave of spleen, of ill humor, that the, the where ladies get upset. Uh, line 25, Two handmaids wait the throne, alike in place, but different far in figure and in face. Here stood ill nature, like an ancient maid, her wrinkled form in black and white arrayed, 
With store of, of, of prayers for mornings, nights, and noons, her hand is filled, her bosom, with lampoons. So there's ill nature, and that's, you know, just, uh, you know, morning, uh, you know, stores of prayers, morning, night, and noons. And then there's affectation, with a sickly mean, shows in her cheek the roses of eighteen, practiced to lisp and hang the head aside, faints into airs and languishes with pride. On the rich quilt sinks with becoming woe, wrapped in a gown for sickness and for show. So affectation is, you know, today we call it the drama queen. She's putting on airs, affecting, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Um, so those are the two guards here at the at the throne. And Umbriel, the, the gnome, uh, sees uh, line 47. Unnumbered throngs on every side are seen of bodies changed to various forms by spleen. Here living teapots stand, one arm held out, one bent, the handle this and that the spout. A pipkin here, like Homer's tripod walks, here sighs a jar, and there a goose pie talks. Men prove with child as powerful fancy works, and maids turn bottles, call aloud for corks. Now, this is just, again, kind of a send-up. This is you know, all of the things that are transformed by spleen, by anger, by ill-temper. And these are not the hideous forms that you see in most visions of hell. They're, they look like, sound like something out of a Disney movie. Uh, but he, uh, uh, Umbriel goes down and addresses the, the queen of, of spleen um, and says, line 78, Hear me and touch Belinda with chagrin. That single act gives half the world the spleen. The goddess with a discontented air seems to reject him, though she grants his prayer. Again, ill, Ill humor and affectation. She, she's giving in to him, but it never looks like she would. A wondrous bag with both her hands she binds, like that where once Ulysses held the winds. There she collects the force of female lungs, sighs, sobs, and passions, and the war of tongues. A vial next she fills with fainting fears, soft sorrows, melting griefs, and flowing tears. So Umbriel gets two things. He gets a bag full of sighs and, and, and uh, sobs and passions, and a vial full of tears and grief. Uh, now, when Umbriel goes back, he finds Thalestris, uh, who is a friend of Belinda's. Uh, that's the name of a, an Amazon, and it's a very appropriate since he's very aggressive. Um, and when he finds them, the swelling bag he rent, and all the furies issued at the vent, Belinda burns with more than mortal ire, and fierce Thalestris fans the rising fire. Uh, so it, it works. The cave of spleen has sent out these uh, these passions that inflame them. Um, and this is, you know, is something that happens in all of the classical epics. In in Homer and Virgil, the gods are always uh, influencing human events, and here the the spirits, uh, the the sylphs and the gnomes are influencing them as well. Uh, again, it, it's a kind of a, a a tiny version of a great epic convention. Uh, and Thalestris says, line ninety seven. 
Was it for this you took such constant care, the bodkin comb and essence to prepare? For this your locks in paper durance bound? For this with torturing irons wreathed around? For this with fillets strained your tender head, and bravely bore the double loads of lead? Gods, shall the ravisher display your hair, while the fops envy and the ladies stare? Honor forbid! Uh, so, here it's saying, after all you've been through, all you know, all the times you curled your hair and 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 uh, used a curling iron and and washed it and did all this, all for this, and now he's going to display it as his trophy. And Thalestris says, line one nineteen: Sooner let earth, air, sea to chaos fall, men, monkeys, lapdogs, parrots, perish all. Now again, there's one of those wonderful little lists that. Pope sneaks in there. Men, monkeys, lapdogs, parrots, perish all. Uh, so we've got men and monkeys and lapdogs and parrots. Um, th- again, they all seem to be of equal importance. Uh, men and monkeys and parrots perish. It's got a, a nice sound to it as well. And right in the middle there, the, the lapdogs. Um, so uh, again, it's flattening out any system of values here. Everything is of equal importance. Um, I, to me, the uh, Rape of the Lock is the most teenage poem ever. It, it's about what it's like in high school when everything that happens to you is of earth-shattering, unbelievable importance. Uh, that's the kind of world that uh, she's living in. But these aren't teenagers. They're, uh, at least ostensibly, grown-ups. And we see that the thing that Thalestris is so upset about is actually going to happen. Line 131, the baron says, It grieves me much, replied the peer again, who speaks so well, should ever speak in vain. But by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear, which never more shall join its parted hair, which never more its honors shall renew, clipped from the lovely head where late it grew, that while my nostrils draw the vital air, this hand which won it, shall forever wear. So he's putting the lock into a, a crystal ring that he's going to wear and display it as his trophy. Uh, says, but Umbriel, the hateful gnome, forbears not so. He breaks the vial whence the sorrows flow. Then see, the nymph in beauteous grief appears, her eyes half languishing, half drowned in tears. On her heaved bosom hung her drooping head, which with a sigh she raised, and thus she said, Forever cursed be this detested day, which snatched my best, my favorite curl away. Again, this is it, it starts out like it's a curse from uh, you know a, a Greek tragedy, but it is what what's the horrible thing that's happened? You know, has Oedipus discovered that he you know killed his father and slept with his mother? No, she's lost a lock of hair. Um, and she says, line 160, What moved my mind with youthful lords to Rome? Oh, had I stayed and said my prayers at home? T'was this the morning omens seemed to tell. Thrice from my trembling hand the patch-box fell, her little makeup box. The tottering china shook without a wind. Nay, Paul sat mute, and shock was most unkind. A sylph, too, warned me of the threats of fate in mystic visions now believed too late. See the poor remnants of these slighted hairs. My hand shall rend what even thy rapine spares. 
These, in two sable ringlets taught to break, once gave new beauties to the snowy neck. The sinister lock now sits uncouth, alone, and in its fellow's fate foresees its own. Uncurled it hangs, the fatal shears demands, and tempts more, once more thy sacrilegious hands. Oh, hadst thou, cruel, been content to seize hairs less in sight, or any hairs but these? Uh, again, you have to keep reminding yourself what she's talking about, because it seems so desperately, epically important. Um, but there's it also a little kind of sexual innuendo here at the end. You know, had thou seized hairs less in sight, or any hairs but these, it suggests that, you know, maybe if you had uh, uh, been interested in the hairs in the nether region. Um, but it also points out that what she's really worried about is that it's all public, that he's displaying the hair, that this the, the lock is so obviously missing. Uh, it, it's not actual her actual honor that's been sullied. It's her reputation that she's more worried about. Again, we've come a long way from the fall of man in Paradise Lost. Now, Canto Five begins with Clarissa making a, a speech. And remember, Clarissa is the one who gave the Baron the scissors, so uh, you have to take that into account as, this, as she's saying all this. She says, line 15, How vain are all these glories, all our pains, unless good sense preserve what beauty gains, that men may say, when we the front box grace, behold, the first in virtue, as in face. So he's saying all of the kind of care of your beauty and your hair and all of that, that's fine. But what's most important is that you have good sense and virtue. Oh, if to dance all night and dress all day charmed the smallpox or chased old age away, who would not scorn what housewife's cares produce? Or who would learn one earthly thing of use? He said, look, if, if th- this kind of a life, you know, you're dancing all day and, you know, wearing pretty clothes, if that kept you from getting sick or, or uh, old, well, then you know, everybody would do it. But it doesn't. It's not like that. To patch an ogle might become a saint, nor could, uh, could it sure be such a sin to paint. But since, alas, frail beauty must decay, curled or uncurled, since locks will turn to gray, since painted or not painted, all shall fade, and she who scorns a man must die a maid. What then remains but well our power to use, and keep good humor still whate'er we lose? And trust me, dear, good humor can prevail when airs and flights and screams and scoldings fail. Beauties in vain their pretty eyes may roll, charm strikes the sight, but merit wins the soul. Now, uh, one further irony of this is this is actually a, a very close paraphrase of a speech from the Iliad. Uh, so it's literally epic. Um, but uh, Clarissa seems to be speaking a lot of sense here. She's the one who puts things into perspective. Now, again, that's also that's ironized by the fact that it's, again, directly quoted from the Iliad, and also that Clarissa is part of the problem here. She, she is an accomplice, at, at least. Um, and it says, So spoke the, da- the dame, but no applause ensued. Belinda frowned. Celestris called her prude. 
to arms, to arms, the fierce virago cries, and swift as lightning to the combat flies. All sides in parties, and begin the attack. Fans clap, silks rustle, and tough whalebones crack. So here we're getting the great epic battle. Uh, the, epic, the signs of the epic battle are the fans clapping, the silk dresses rustling, and the, the little the, the crinkling of the whalebone in the in the uh, skirts. Um, so again, this is not really exactly a, a, something out of the the Iliad, um, but it's presented as if it was. And look at the account of this battle, line uh, fifty-seven. While through the press enraged Thalestris flies and scatters death around from both her eyes, a bow and wilting perished in the throng. One died in metaphor and one in song. O cruel nymph, a living death I bear, cried dapper wit and sunk beside his chair. A mournful glance, Sir Fopling upwards casts. Those eyes are made so killing, was his last. Thus on Meander's flowery margin lies the expiring swan, and as he sings, he dies. When bold Sir Plume had drawn Clarissa down, Chloe stepped in and killed him with a frown. She smiled to see the doughty hero slain, but at her smile the bow revived again. So here, the the, the battle that they have is all about, you know, again, this is so very high school it's all about oh well he frowned at her and he didn't look at oh they're not talking and then you know it's all this kind of gossip and infighting and and social uh uh signaling that's going on uh, metaphors and songs there's no real actual violence happening here uh it, but they're treating it as if it was as serious as a real war it says now jove suspends his golden scales in air weighs the men's wits against the lady's hair the doubtful beam long nods from side to side. At length, the wits mount up, the hairs subside. See fierce Belinda on the barren flies, with more than usual lightning in her eyes, nor fear the, the chief the unequal fight to try, who sought no more than on his foe to die. So the golden scales, again, hopefully you remember in Paradise Lost when God sets up the scales when there's about to be the great battle between the angels here is the same thing happening. So she, Belinda, goes and attacks uh, the Baron, and her great attack is to throw some snuff at him and make him sneeze. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see, around line 103, Restore the lock, she cries, and all around, Restore the lock, the vaulted roof rebounds. Not fear so Othello in so loud a strain roared for the handkerchief that caused his pain. But see how oft ambitious aims are crossed, and chiefs contend till all the prize is lost. The lock, obtained with guilt and kept with pain, in every place is sought, but sought in vain. With such a prize no mortal must be blessed, so heaven decrees with heaven who can contest." So they're calling for the lock, but it's gone. And we find out that what happens to it, line 127, it says, A sudden star it shot through liquid air and drew behind a radiant trail of hair. Not Bernie's lock first rose so bright, the heavens bespangling with disheveled light. The sylphs behold it kindling as it flies and pleased pursue its progress through the skies.
Now, this is, again, something right out of classical mythology where uh, when, when heroes die, they become constellations in the sky. Well, that's what's happened to her, her beautiful lock of hair. It's been, the Baron doesn't have it. It's, it's a monument in the sky. And so the very end of the poem, uh, starting on line uh, 141, Then cease, bright nymph, to mourn thy ravished hair, which adds new glory to the shining sphere. And all the tresses that fair heads can boast shall draw such envy as the lock you lost. For after all the murders of your eye, when after millions slain yourself shall die, when those fair suns shall set as set they must, and all those tresses shall be laid in dust, this lock the muse shall consecrate to fame, and midst the stars inscribe Belinda's name. So it's, again, very much like Clarissa's uh, speech, it's reminding us of mortality. Look, this is we're only here for a short time, you know, and not too long all of your locks will be dust, but now there's one in the stars that will be immortal. Um, So it's an interesting kind of poetic and mythic resolution to this. Uh, It turns out in real life they didn't reconcile and they stayed bitter about it. Um, But we have the poem, which is a lot more fun. Uh, Again, we see throughout this the way that uh, Pope is using that this elevated, beautiful language and these epic conventions to give us a, a satiric point of view on what's happening. Uh, and at the same time, I think giving us a very sympathetic view of how people feel who live in this very strange world where, uh, uh, you know, having a China cup chipped is the same as losing your virginity. Uh, all right, well, we'll leave the rape of the lock there for next time uh, I would like you to read the first part of Gulliver's Travels Uh, Jonathan Swift was an Irish writer and a friend actually of Alexander Pope's they were contemporaries and he too was a satirist um, though I think you will find his satires uh, become a little bit uh, sharper and more bitter book one of uh, Gulliver's Travels, is the voyage to Lilliput. And the Lilliputians are tiny men. They're like like six inches high, and there's a whole nation of them. And think about what kinds of satiric points Swift is making about society here. Now, a lot of them uh, apply very specifically to his time, but I think you'll see that a lot of them are more universal uh, that they apply to, and, and what is it that he's satirizing exactly? Um, and how is, what symbolically does the tininess of the Lilliputians mean? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that and about uh, Swift's very different style of satire from Pope's uh, next time. Uh, again, the email address is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.